Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be plowing or reap and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region... Oh, lost my place. You shall live in the region of Goshan and be near me, you and your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there, because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms round his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. May God bless the reading of his word. Good morning. Will you pray with me? Father God, as we come into your presence this morning, this Sunday morning, we acknowledge who you are, that you are a holy God, and that you are the great I am, and that we are not. Lord, we thank you for your word that nourishes us. We thank you for your word that invites us into this story of redemption. That this morning that we can learn from the ways of our spiritual forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Lord, I pray for today, Lord, that your truth and your gospel would be proclaimed. Jesus' name. Amen. So as you know, we've been going through the book of Genesis these past couple weeks. We started a new series on understanding the Bible. Now, when I first learned that I was going to be preaching on Genesis 37 to 50, you know, the first thought I had in my mind was, how do I preach on 14 chapters at once? It's a lot of material to cover. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that you know, this is just... One story with an idea that fits into this big story, the Bible, Old Testament and the New. And this is what our series is driving at, to be able to know God through Scripture, to see that Scripture is this one big story, comprised of many smaller stories. And scholars use the term meta-narrative to describe this idea, this, this big grand narrative comprised of small individual narratives. So seeing the Bible as one big story affects how we understand the scriptures. And not only do we ask, 
when we approach a story like the story of Joseph, you know, how does this apply to me? But we ask, you know, how does this fit within the Old Testament? How does it relate to the New? What does it mean for today? The Bible is one big story. Now I want to show you something. Behind me is this arc diagram that is built off of a data set of several different cross-references in the Bible. A cross-reference is basically when a verse connects to another verse because it either directly quotes it, alludes to it, or has some commonality of some sort, whether a theme or a person or event. And so the, this bottom line at the bottom is going to be all the chapters from Genesis to Revelation. And each arc connects one verse with another. So what you have here is this beautiful, colorful representation of connection and continuity in this big story. From Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to end. The Bible is one big story. Now our passage for today fits into this larger narrative as well. What does this look like? Now it's a lot like what we see in television shows and movies. Now I can use the example of the show How I Met Your Mother. Now, if you've seen the show, know that I'm not going to be talking about the ending. Uh, but the analogy still works, maybe even better with the ending. But for the sake of the analogy, we'll keep it simple. If you haven't seen the show, you'll still be able to follow along. Now, the show is about a guy named Ted who lives in New York City with his four friends. Now, at the beginning of the show, it's in the future, and Ted sits his two kids down, and he gives them a lecture after they fought. And his lecture is all about how he met their mother. And this lecture spans nine years or nine seasons. So for nine years, each episode is going to be about, you know, Ted's relationships before you met the mother or his adventures in New York City with his friends. And each episode moves closer and closer to who the mother is and how he met her. Now, some episodes are going to give us a lot of clues to this bigger theme of how he met the kid's mother. Other episodes, you're left wondering, now, how does this fit into the big story? How he met his, their mother. Now, I've been waiting, I've been watching this show for four, five, six years. But it all fits. From the people he dates, to the relationships he has, to the friends he makes, it, it leads Ted to the mother and it shapes and forms him. And so the Bible, in the same way, is a big story about God redeeming a broken world and a broken people. In some narratives, like the birth of Jesus and King David, you can totally see how it contributes to the overall grand biblical story, the grand biblical meta-narrative. But in some narratives, you're wondering, I don't, I don't see the connection. But my point is that it all fits. It's all part of a bigger story. And for us today, the Abrahamic promises function in a way that structures the biblical story. They're like the seasons of a show. There's three promises, descendants, land, blessing to the nations. There's three seasons, Genesis, descendants, Exodus to the end of the Old Testament, and uh, land, and New Testament, Matthew till now, blessing to the nations. And like any good season, you have a cliffhanger in the season finale, where you're left wondering, now I have to wait another couple months before I can figure out what happens next season. And this is kind of where our story takes place now, between, uh, as a transition between season one descendants and season two land. We'll return to this point later. Let's talk about where we come from. 
We began the series with Genesis 1 and 3, talking about why we experience the world as both good and bad. It's the prologue. It sets up the rest of the Bible. We see there that God is both good and sovereign, and he works to redeem a broken world and a broken people. And then we saw that uh, God began the long road back to redemption through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There were great promises, but also great obstacles, which he overcame, but in his timing. And much of Genesis is focused on the fulfillment of uh, the first promise, descendants. So as we close out Genesis today, you can say that the, the season one finale of the biblical story is coming to a close. We're approaching the end of this particular story arc, the one focused on descendants. And today we're going to close out this arc with the story of Joseph, uh, Jacob's sons. And we're going to see what we've been seeing in the past few weeks and maybe even to a clearer extent. How does God fulfill his salvation historical promises? Turn with me to Genesis 37. Now, there's a lot of material I'll be reading from the ESV, so if you can follow on, that's great. If not, just listen. Now, we're first introduced to Joseph in chapter 37. He's a brat. He's 17 years old, makes a bad report about his brothers, either a false report or a tattletelling on them. And yet we find in verse 3 that Isaac, as Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Now, favoritism seems to run in the family because you have Isaac loving Esau and Rebekah loving Jacob, and then Jacob loves Rachel and not Leah. And now, as a result, Joseph's brothers hate him. In fact, they hate him a lot. Because three times it says that they hate him. And each time their hate intensifies. In verse 4 it says, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. And then Joseph gets this dream, and then he tells his brothers, and they hate him even more. And they say, are you really going to rule over us? And then their hatred, they add to their hatred. So much so that they plan to kill him. In verse 20 it says, Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then you will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. Now, they're saying this in a very sneering and mocking way, as if to say, you know, this, our kid brother, brother from another mother, dreams this dream. Says that he's going to rule over us. Now, let's see what his dream becomes if he's dead. But the irony here is that this dream actually does come true. And we do see what the dream becomes because of his brother's actions. So Joseph ends up being sold as a slave into Egypt. And here in chapter 39, for the first time in this narrative, we see that the Lord is active in Joseph's life. He's always been in the background. But here it says that the Lord was with Joseph twice. And for us, as the reader, it should remind us of the Lord's words to Isaac and Jacob. I will be with you. Even the Egyptian Potiphar recognized this fact, and he saw that the Lord was with Joseph. But the good times aren't going to last. You know, first Joseph ran into the obstacle of being sowed into Egypt. And right as he's making his way up, he gets knocked back down. 
Now, in verse 6, it says that, Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now, in all the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament, only Rachel, his mother, is afforded this double accolade of being beautiful in form and appearance. So what does this mean? It means Joseph was a stud. Joseph was good-looking. He was handsome. Maybe a bit too handsome. Maybe God blessed him a bit too much. Because now Potiphar's wife is chasing after him, pursuing him relentlessly daily. But we see how Joseph has grown from this brat to this young man of God as he shuts her down. So she ends up sending him to prison. But even still at the end of chapter 39, it says again twice, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. So after some time, Joseph gets called into Pharaoh's service. Pharaoh has these two dreams, the one of the cows and the one of the stocks. And Pharaoh says in chapter 41, verse 15, I've got a dream. There's no one who can interpret it. Now I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph, knowing that he's been gifted by God with, uh, with dreams and he's been gifted by God with the ability to interpret, doesn't attribute it to himself. He knows God is working through him. And so he says, it's not in me, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And later he says that the dreams of Pharaoh are one. The doubling of Pharaoh's dreams signify its certain fulfillment by God. It's going to happen. So we as a reader in this story are reminded, wait, wait, Joseph's dreams are double too, aren't they? So as we participate in this story, the story unfolds and it gets more interesting. And it reaches a point where Pharaoh, ruler of all of Egypt, acknowledges that the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was working through Joseph. In verse 38 of chapter 41, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. And all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. I've set you over all the land of Egypt. So as we trace this story, we see Joseph being sold into Egypt, being sent to prison, and now he's second in command over all of Egypt. Started from the bottom, now he's here. And after some time, a famine comes and threatens Jacob's descendants. It threatens the first promise. I mean, how are you going to fulfill Abraham's promise if they're all dead? So Jacob says in chapter 42, verse 2, Behold, I have heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy some grain for us so that we may live and not die. So they go down. And it says that Joseph recognized his brothers, but he, they didn't recognize him. It also says that he remembered the dreams that he dreamed of them, and it brings us back to chapter 37. But what's interesting here is that he doesn't mention the dreams to his brothers right there. He doesn't say, I'm Joseph, I'm your brother, or I told you so. He says, you are spies. And you have to wonder, you know, what's going on here? And there's probably several different reasons. But it's because of this plan that he can get them to come back. I mean, he 
imprison one of his brothers. It's through this he can learn about his father and, and find out about his new brother Benjamin, who he never, never met. And thus begins this back and forth from Canaan to Egypt, from Canaan to Egypt. And his brothers, finding their, their money in their sacks, are freaking out. They're terrified. And they're saying, you know, this is God doing this to us because of what we did to Joseph. And so we see in this story that what the brothers, the brothers' understanding of the events is different from what's actually happening or what, what God is doing. And as the story unfolds, it builds to this climax. Joseph, in testing his brothers, is tormenting himself. In testing his brothers, he's tormenting himself. Several times he has to go out of the room to weep. He has to wash his face so his eyes aren't so puffy as he comes back into the room. All the events that have led up to this point, all the obstacles, all the hate, all the dreams, all the sufferings, all the successes, have led up to this point. 45 verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he says, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him because they were dismayed at his presence. They were terrified. You know, here's this guy who is second in command. Here's a guy who is feeding them, and he's saying that he's the brother that they sold into Egypt, who they believe to be dead. Here's this guy who just a few moments ago was using a translator to speak to them. And now he kicked that translator out, and now he's speaking in their own language. His own language. And he says, Now your eyes see in the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth. Not the mouth of a translator. The mouth, my mouth, in our language, that speaks to you. And Joseph proclaims, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. Because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And for us, for those of us who have been going through the devotionals, who have been reading Genesis, the word that should be popping up in the back of our minds right now should be descendants, 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 descendants. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. So this is the centerpiece of this story, that God fulfills his salvation historical promises through those who help and in spite of those who hinder. That God fulfills his salvation historical promises through those who help and in spite of those who hinder. And you'll see in Chuck's devotional tomorrow, this chiastic structure which has been building up behind me, with the centerpiece being Joseph revealing himself to his brothers and the truth that he proclaims, that God fulfills the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through Joseph and in spite of his brother's evil actions. 
And so from here, the story naturally unfolds to the conclusion. Jacob and his family settle in Egypt, and Joseph continues to carry out uh, his plans for the famine. Uh, Jacob dies, and his body returns to Canaan. Now, at the end of this narrative, Joseph once again says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, what I've done to illustrate this main point even more, and to really emphasize this story aspect that we talked about, is I've taken this chiastic structure and I overlaid it onto Gustav Freitag's analysis, which most of us have learned in elementary school. You have the exposition, which introduces the important background information. You have some key event that sets off the rising action, a key event just like Joseph being sold into Egypt. And thus begins this series of important related events that build to the greatest point of interest, which is our message today, how God fulfills his promises. And from there, you have the falling action as the story unravels and it concludes in the denouement. So what does this mean for us today? Where does it leave us? You know, there's about 70 descents by the end of Genesis. That doesn't seem like a lot. But at least by the beginning of Exodus, we see that the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have multiplied greatly. With one flip of a page, we've gone from season one to season two. With one flip of a page, we've traveled 400 years. Now, it's easy for us to, to not be aware of the timing of this, because all we have to do is flip a page. But it's a lot like what we had to in, endure when we wait from season one to season two, and we have to wait those couple months, waiting to see what, what happens. And for them, these promises, it didn't take a couple months, it took 400 years. And so this is where our story fits in the bigger story, going from season one to season two. And Joseph himself says in verse 24 of chapter 50, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see that God accomplishes his promises through Joseph and in spite of his brothers even through Egypt and in spite of Egypt. God fulfills his salvation historical promises through those who help and in spite of those who hinder. And what is probably one of the most clearest examples of this in the New Testament is Jesus, right? Jesus and the Pharisees. Because as they sought to crucify him, it was in his crucifixion that he brought salvation to the world. As the Romans nailed him to that tree, to that rugged cross, what was an instrument of death for them became for us an instrument of salvation. And this truth still occurs today. I mean, when you look at China, and you see all the obstacles that are impeding God's fulfillment of the third promise, of being a blessing to the nations, things that Eric talked about and things that Emily prayed about. You have to wonder, you know, how, how did the church in China grow to be so big? 
in spite of all those obstacles, in spite of all those hindrances. You know, it was difficult to join a church. You know, Christianity was a legal religion for quite a while. The buildings are, are torn down and they're still torn down today and the list goes on. But what's interesting here is that the strict oppression of Christianity actually led the church in China to become even closer to the New Testament model of a church, a missional church, a church that is focused on going out rather than attracting in, a church that is less focused on you know, how can we increase the number of attendees or how can we increase the money that's being poured into the church and more focused on uh, creating a disciple-making culture, equipping those to share the gospel. And this drastically differs from the state of North American churches today. Because out of the oppression of Christianity in China arose a church that was distinctively Chinese, not westernized. They didn't have to go through a lot of the struggles that uh, North American churches go through uh, over the past 50 years. Because you see a lot of churches over the past 50 years have become these attractional, attractional churches that are focused on entertainment and a, and a consumeristic culture where they try to seek to ask uh, and answer the question, you know, what, what can we give to these congregants rather than what can they bring to the church as they enter into the presence of God. So much so that every single mainline denomination has been dying since 1965. And yet with the church in China, we see this true proclaim that God is fulfilling His salvation historical promises through them in spite of those who hinder. And this truth still occurs today in North America as well. And more recently, even here in the U.S., and I have to give Protect credit for uh, giving me in some insight into the situation. Many college campuses, as you, as you know, uh, these ministries on campus have been de-recognized because of a non-discrimination policy that says that Christian campus clubs cannot require the leaders to be Christian. And so in a particular case, this happened to Sonoma State University, where their Ivy Fellowship was de-recognized, so they couldn't have a booth at the club fair. But what happened, in spite of those hindrances, was an upsurge of faith to the extent that these students went out to their peers on campus rather than waiting for them to come to them at some measly booth. One of the students confesses after officially being de-recognized. Now, I was so worried that InterVarsity would no longer have the impact on people's lives that it once did. Instead, this change has empowered us even more. God fulfills His salvation, historical promises through those who help, through those who, in spite of those who hinder. So let us worship together knowing that we serve a God who is sovereign, who is providential. Let us even feel comforted and confident knowing that when we face adverse missional circumstances, that God will accomplish His purpose for the bigger picture, even though it may not turn out so well for us here on earth right now, as we seek to be a blessing to the nations. Let us hold on to that truth. Let us worship together as we serve a God who is full of grace and love, so much so that 
even our fallenness will not stop Him, cannot stop Him from redeeming a broken world and a broken people. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge who you are, Lord. And we thank you for your truth today that uh, proclaims how great you are. And Lord, we thank you for this story, uh, for giving us your word that can speak to us and that invites us in to partake, to participate in this mission. And so as we go through this series and we understand our role in the greater biblical story, the greater biblical meta-narrative, let us hold on to this truth that you will fulfill and you are fulfilling and you have fulfilled your salvation historical promises. In Jesus' name, amen.